Hey, everybody. Welcome to another podcast episode. I am super jazzed about today to introduce you to Tiffany McLean. She is from HeyTiffany.com. And today we're going to be talking about money. Money. Hey. money. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We've known each other. We were just talking before I hit record. We've known each other for several years. Time is very elusive during this pandemic, but we met in person. I think it was at Evolution of Psychotherapy. We were talking about a happy hour that we met at. You did some acro yoga, I think, with Miranda. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yes. How long have you had Hey Tiffany? I started it in 2000, January of 2016, I think is when I was officially like, all right, here's a thing. And even as you introduced me, I remember, I think 2015 or 2014, I booked a consultation with one of you two. I'm just remembering now, years and years ago, you were like the four people of therapist marketing gurus. And I just remembered, oh, wait a minute. So we've gone, we go way back. Okay. I do kind of remember that now that you say that. Oh, wow. Sorry. Wow. I didn't remember either till this moment. It's really, it's like like a decade ago. Nobody's paying attention to what's happening a decade ago. No. Trying to get through the day by day here. So why did you, I mean, you're a therapist doing therapy. Why do you hate Tiffany? I always knew, it's really interesting because this is changing so much, but at the time I knew that I wanted to have a private practice. I really like that depth oriented work. Mm-hmm. And I thought I also want to do something on the side at the time that will scale, that will be more than the one-to-one. Um, I want to make a lot of money and mm-hmm. I wanted to make a bigger impact. I knew then could just happen in my private practice. So I always knew I was going to be doing some combination of private practice with some different kind of impact work. Well, and when you started it, what was the biggest surprise about doing this impact work oh at a gosh. bigger scale? There are a million things. I actually even, this is something else I remember about you two. Um, I was on your list uh, back in the day. You guys were the ones. So I was, you know, I was paying attention and there was some um, maybe spelling error. Uh-huh. And I wrote back, oh, you two, there's a spelling error here. And now I think back as I'm scaling and trying to just build up a business and all the pieces in place. And I'm like, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. I I like when people tell me about spelling errors and like, wow, who gives a shit? Like in (laughs) in the big scheme of what you all were doing, nobody cares about whether you put an E on, I don't even know what it was, but it's just thinking about like, oh, before I got into building a business and scaled, I had no idea what it took and all the moving parts and all the, uh, I had a feeling about the psychological growth that it would entail, mm, would entail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, even things like dealing with all the people who are like, oh, you got a spelling error here and have no idea of all the things they're doing behind the scenes. So uh-huh. I think maybe just the reality of what it takes has been surprising to me over and over and over again. And it constantly leads me to go back and reflect and be impressed by what people like you mm. have been doing for years. Yeah. I would say like that whole passive income. It's not very passive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no passive. There's no passive income. I'm still wondering like what could be passive income, but I haven't found that thing. And I mean, when you came on the scene, so funny, like it's a music scene or something. But when you came on the scene, your focus has been around the money aspect and the fee aspect and the 
you know, why that part of it? Because Miranda and I tend to focus on the nuts and bolts of the business that impact yes. the outcome. So it's a little bit more broad, you know, but for you, I just, you're like, I'm doing the money thing. So why that? Yes. Money, money, money. I, I think the same as with, uh, uh, therapists, why we choose the niche we do or the niche we do. There's something of our own growth path or growth yeah. journey in that. So two things. I originally started out with Hey Tiffany. I knew I wanted to work with therapists because that's who I was around. That's who all my friends were. That was my community. And I did think about therapist marketing and I tried a whole bunch of different programs, but I kept coming back to the money. People kept talking about the money or they were doing marketing and they were still coming out of marketing and charging not anywhere near enough to actually be able to do well, survive. Mm -hmm. They could survive, but not like thrive. And I'm like, you invested all this money in these great marketing programs or this great coaching and you created this great brand and you're still not making any money. Mm -hmm. And so all of the doubts and insecurities and vulnerabilities around that, there was nothing I was seeing that was addressing solely that. I know there are things out there, but that was my own calling as well. Like, man, this is an area where I've struggled and have mm -hmm. to continue to push myself. And I would love to have other people to go on this journey with me. I know a lot of boot campers have done your course because you have a course, right? And yeah, um, but they always talk about it like it, it's not just that it changed what I charge in my business, it changed me. Because I think you bring that depth-oriented perspective to the money conversation. So I wanted to kind of do that today and look at what you think is important that is often missed in the whole pricing conversation when it comes to getting deeper and one of the things too of like looking at more of the intersectionality of this conversation too to be had absolutely and there is so much that i have learned and continue to learn as i go through this journey around wow race class gender how these things play into what um, therapists feel comfortable charging feel like they have the right to charge all of those conversations uh, and I have specifically, both in my practice and in my Hey Tiffany business, been drawn to women, women of color, and people who come from working class backgrounds. So we all have a similar theme when it comes to building wealth uh, and, yeah. and our fears and the zero-sum game around that that we hold on to. What do you see that comes up that you often are helping people walk through? Yeah, all of the things. I'm like, where, You're where like, to where start? Oh man. So one of the things this you, and you see this all the time, I'm sure it's everywhere in the Facebook groups, uh, in the communities, this fear that if we charge good money, if we charge what we need to charge in order to have the life we want and what we want to charge in order to have the life we want, that we are somehow um, betraying our values to give back, to make an impact, to help people. And this myth that we have to sacrifice ourselves in order to help the people we're passionate about serving is very per pervasive. And uh, over the years, I've been able to find research that shows why therapists are this way, why we particularly given the families of origin we come from and the themes there, and also larger professional research around therapists and money, why we so often get trapped in this mm, either or dynamic. What research have you found? Because I, we've been, we're, um, I was just reading some the other last week about more in terms of um, the conversation of fee and on the impact of therapeutic outcomes and things like that is what I've been really kind of fascinated by. But I'm curious 
what you're finding in the research as to why we are the way we are as therapists? I am going to tell you about a particular study that I read over and over again. But before I do, what did you learn about fee and therapeutic outcomes? Let's, <laughs> let's do a little thinking about that for a minute. What'd you find? What'd you read? Yeah, well, I think that the research is kind of shoring up what I've always thought is that um, the fee conversation is part of a therapeutic conversation that if we can't have that conversation, what other conversations are we not having with our clients? And also um, bringing home of thinking about how we have that discussion can in change the outcome. So if it's part of informed consent, if I'm having my initial consultation with you and I hem and haw about the fee or I bargain, what does that do to the, the relationship already in establishing? Because we know that through um, the research, like super shrinks research, outcomes are based on your ability to form trust and an attachment with the client, right? A healthy attachment. It does not matter how long you've been doing the work. It doesn't matter your licensure type. It doesn't matter your theory or your intervention per se. Um, it matters your ability to connect. And so if you are internally disconnected on the feed, that is going to be transmitted to the client. And so there's a, a an underlying, maybe unconscious, of course, I love the depth oriented, but there's this un, uh, unconscious lack of trust when it comes to the transaction of what are we really doing here? You know, I'm paying you X fee and then you you're not sure about it, or I had to bargain with you and go back and forth. So there's that. And then too, like when people, the reason why fee is part of informed consent is that people can then make a good decision. So if they say, okay, I didn't really know what the fee was. I didn't really know what your average length of treatment is. I didn't know kind of what to expect. And so they drop out sooner. They don't finish. They're not making decisions on picking the best care for their situation either. This is phenomenal. So what you just described, particularly the first part is like, oh, that's what we teach in the program. And I never had the language to describe it. So thank you. That's wonderful to hear like, oh, how I'm not like a researchy person, but to hear it put in this evidence-based uh, language is like, oh, that's why what we're doing works. <laughs> so thank yeah. you for that. And it's exactly on point. So in terms of the, we all come back to the, um, factors that lead therapists to struggle with this. But even in terms of what you're talking about, the clinical interventions around yeah. money, uh, the unconscious process, I also am depth oriented, you know, that uh, psychoanalytic, yeah. I'm going to yes. just put it out so there, psychoanalytic. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that in our first conversation. Yeah. So really the unconscious conversations therapists are having uh, with their clients around money that nobody is addressing, the big elephant in the room, uh, therapists own anxiety around it really impacts the clinical work. And so that's a lot of what we do in our program. Mm. I'm glad you brought it up. Coming back to why we therapists struggle so much with money. Um, one woman, her name's Ella Lasky. She wrote a paper in the eighties where she was looking at uh, therapists, family of origin. And she found that therapists are more likely than their siblings or people from other professions to serve the role of helper in their family. So they uh, navigate conflicts, uh, they're the mediator, they're the go-between. So all of these things that we're like, oh yeah, that was me. Therapists have that upbringing. So they already are starting off with, my value comes from being the mediator, being the helper, sacrificing my own well-being in order to help other people uh, negotiate conflict. And so then when we go into our professional lives, our business, it's very difficult for therapists to see that as, oh, this is um, a value that you 
honed. You've been trained for this. This is something that's actually worth a ton of money, not just something you're supposed to do as a member of your family or as a member of a relationship. But in fact, you are more than um, uh, a family mediator who's helping your parents stay together or whatever form it took. And in fact, you're a trained professional. So it's very difficult for therapists to feel like, oh, I should be charging premium fees for this service. Not to mention, which we'll get into, uh, gender, class, historical, the historical um, value that's not been placed on the work of women and the work of people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, so then you pair that already, the yes. intergenerational stuff, the role of, that you've played in your family of origin. We call it FOOBS in um, boot camp, family of origin BS. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And so you have that, but then you couple that with what do you, how do you see that getting compounded and more solidified because of gender, race, ethnicity? What do you see yes. coming yeah. up for people? And we'll also talk about our professional culture, which reinforces <laughs> all of these stories. So it's compounded family, compounded larger societal uh, institutions and uh, uh, racism, classism, mm-hmm. genderism, all that. And then our profession that reinforces, you reinforces know, don't make money. Them all of it. So we, we know for, for certain that women are um, historically paid less than men on all fronts. Mm-hmm. We know that this is something I've only just begun to learn. And it's so interesting how women were even denied credit. They couldn't open their own lines of credit. They couldn't have their own bank accounts. This is something without having a co-signer, which is often their husband or maybe a father up mm-hmm. until the sixties or seventies. I had no effing idea that mm-hmm. this was all so recent. So like I said, mm-hmm. this is all unfolding for me as I'm continuing to do this work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, and also we know for black folks, all kinds of, uh, we, we talked about redlining earlier, redlining, ways we've been kept out of the financial system, ways we haven't been able to get housing. So um, traditional ways that Americans have built wealth, people of color have been denied, women have been denied. So then we take all of this into setting our fees and we feel like, I don't really know anything about money. I don't wanna deal with it, I'm scared. There was some really interesting research done by Brad Klontz Um, And he looked at uh, money scripts with therapists and he found that therapists are much more likely to be money avoidant than people in other professions. So we Mm. also have um, uh, fear of money, the feeling that we're not good at it, uh, all kinds of systems in place to tell us we should just be helping. We should just be giving ourselves away for free. We should be prioritizing everybody else before us. And then we go into a business where we're helping people and we're like, (laughs) This is just what I do. If I make money, that's a problem. So we mm-hmm. continue to devalue our own work. We internalize these structures and then we go on to devalue our own work. And then we model this devaluing to other, uh, the, the clinicians who come after us and to our clients who are coming for our help. Yes. We talk a lot about that in terms of if you don't like how we were raised in our system, the professional system, the change has to start with us and how if we don't dismantle some of that with internally, we're going to perpetuate it as we hire clinicians to work in our practices and, and those, you know, supervised clinicians and things like that. How many times have I heard therapists tell me my supervisor said, yes, why are you doing that? You can't make money doing this. And I'm like, why are people contributing to this story that isn't true? There's so much, you know, you can think about so much envy out there for when we see therapists who are charging a lot of money. Oh, we have a first inclination of, I want that. I'm not good enough. And then, well, they're just bad. You know, rather than dealing with the internal tension of a desire, 
having our own desire, uh, we're really quick to, we can be really quick to, without examination, put that person down or try to knock them down a peg. Well, maybe they're making money, but they're probably not good people or they don't have the same values. And I don't fault therapists for having those feelings and feeling envious or wanting to destroy people who are doing well. But I do encourage therapists, especially because you're listening to this podcast right now, to examine those feelings. And I'm challenging therapists to not just end with the story of they're bad and I'm good, but actually pay attention to what are the larger sociocultural uh, dynamics going into these thoughts that um, therapists who are making money are bad. Let's, let's start unpacking that. Let's pay attention to it. And let's pay attention to our own stories around that for sure. Well, I think some of it means that if we are avoidant or if we are quick to judge, it means that we don't have to grieve yeah and deal with the stuff that we have taken on and adhered to as truth or as you know this is the way it is and i think sometimes there's resentment of like oh my gosh i haven't done that for myself and until i can this is just an interesting kind of you know until i can't how how did they get permission and i think there's a longing you know, for that, for ourselves. And when we recognize, oh my gosh, I got this from my parents. I got this because I, you know, I'm a, a woman or I'm a person, person of color who has faced this and I'm, am still facing it and yes. repli- seeing it again in my business. Like it's enraging. If you really think about it, we're avoiding those feelings of anger and grief and instead just projecting that onto, uh, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> That's right. And it's so powerful. I think like, if therapists are able to tap into exactly what you're saying, your grief uh, and even regret, I've come this far in life and I didn't know or have yeah. access to these stories. Like, oh, that kills me personally. Uh, and then also the anger that comes with it. If we can tap into it rather than cutting it off by saying good or bad, there's so much power to one, make bank, and two, change the fucking system. In my mm-hmm. mind, if therapists have time, more time, and more money, we can make an impact in such a big way, but it requires that we um, allow ourselves, free ourselves up from the narratives that have kept us stuck. So I'm going to ask about one of the things that often comes up with boot campers that we talk about is this desire of, I come from an oppressed community and I want to serve those oppressed communities but I can't serve them and make the level of money that I want to make. Uh-huh. I'm sure you have all kinds of answers. I can give you my answer for that, but I know you have an answer. No, so how I do you? Hear, I want to hear your thoughts. Okay. No, okay. I, <laughs> I'll it. give you my thoughts. Yeah. Um, it's a, that comes back to the myth. The, the fantasy that uh, if I make money that I'm hurting people is counter to reality. The fact of the matter is, especially with those therapists who really have a heart to serve, they really feel uh, passionate about the communities that they come from or that they can relate to in whatever way. If you have more money, if you have more time, you're going to be giving back to those communities in a much bigger way than you ever could if you're seeing 30 clients a week, stressed out, overwhelmed, you come in all harried, your hair is crazy, you haven't eaten, you got, you got to pee and you're not having taken time. You're actually not helping folks from that position. And you, I, I know this is a little controversial. Like, I do really good work, Tiffany, even though I see 50 clients a week. No, you don't. I hear you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You can't. Yeah, okay. Because I do believe, like in energy. And I, I just, I have to, we do, we do want to challenge that. I have seen people work seven days a week, nine sessions every day. And it's like, 
if you had your client come in, would you be like, yeah, I bet you're doing great work at 50 yeah. hours. Yeah. You would not, you'd want so much more for them. Why do you want yeah. so much more for others that you don't want for yourself? Yes. And you really do good work and not eat or go to the bathroom <laughs> or if that's all, but is that the standard of living yes. that, that, that that's enough that it's as long as I eat and pee, I'm good. Like, yeah. That's right. I don't think really, you can. It's really interesting, this point you make, and I love it, that therapists, the, the ones who are overwhelmed and overworked and making no money, are like, but I have to advocate for the client. And people like you and I are coming in saying, well, then we're going to effing advocate for you. Who's advocating mm -hmm. for you? And they're mm -hmm. so resistant. Like, I don't, I'm not worthy of it. I don't deserve it. It comes mm -hmm. down to, whoa, somebody's actually going to fight for me in the way I uh, am, am trying to fight for my clients. It's very hard for therapists to accept even that level of support. And mm -hmm. I'll say, if you really want to have a practice that gives back to people, you also have to be willing to feel what it, feel what it feels like to have someone advocate on your behalf. Oh, I think that's a great point. I just got chills when you said that. I think that's a great point that I've never really expressed. And I am going to continue to share that on and, yes. and say, Tiffany says. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I think there is something about that, the avoiding of like not allowing people to support you um, and what that can feel like. I just really resonated when you said that. I do think that there's lots of ways to increase access and still have a great fee that works for you, you know, and there's yeah. lots of ways to give back beyond what you do in your business and yes. beyond your one-on-one -on -one services. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There was a, uh, I was doing a Facebook live the other day. I'm about to lose this thought even as I, as I'm getting it because it's a, a slippery one, something. Oh yes. It is this, uh, this is another myth that therapists perpetuate or a story that therapists tell themselves to feel good, which is I'm sliding my scale to get my, my scale to give back to this person. That's why I did it. And the reality is uh, you slid your scale in that moment because you were desperate for the money and you were afraid to say no and you were afraid to hurt the person. So you said, okay, uh, my fee is 150, but you want 75? Okay. And so the fantasy that that actually changes the system is just that. It's a fantasy. The real way to change the system is with consistent, strategic, disciplined, focused work. And so this thing of haphazardly sliding scales, all, fees all over the place and feeling overwhelmed and, and anxious is actually not creating a systemic change. It's relieving your moment to moment anxiety. It's almost like uh, uh, and I don't mind giving a homeless person money. I've, I do that before. Uh, I, I, I do that. But to feel like, oh, oh, I don't like to see that homeless person on the street. Here's five bucks. Ah, I feel good about myself. You're not actually doing anything to change the system. So sure, go ahead and slide your scale if you want to or uh, give a, a, buy a meal for a homeless person. But if you really want to make change, carve out time, uh, carve out money to do that in a consistent, thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. I think... Oh man, then my thought got slippery. <laughs> Where did it go? I think in terms of that, if someone, if you're listening to her, Tiffany, and you feel like, oh no, that, that's not true. I really did it to help the person. It is okay to have a sliding scale, okay? But it is not part of your business plan and how you make money. And it is a small percentage of your caseload. And if you have a process which takes away any room for it to be because of something on your part, which means you have, you take into consideration, like, are you looking at what they make? Because if you're in a nonprofit and they try to figure out your fee, they have a process. They look at your income and all these kinds of things. Like you meet criteria. Why do they do that? To 
take out the bias and to take out that. this wishy-washy, I don't know, yes. maybe I feel this, I feel compelled, I want to do this for you. Instead, it's like, no, these are the, it's very kind of logical process so that we eliminate this potential for bias and lack of integrity. Because if all of your sliding scale people sat in a room together and share what they paid, would you feel good about it? And would you be Ooh. able to say, this is why? Yeah, I love how you articulated that. And even when you were talking about the wishy-washy feelings that come up when a new client or potential client is sitting across from us, we call that counter-transference. And if we're <laughs> about to set our fees based on the feeling we have with the client in the room, that's a problem because that client is bringing all their stuff for us to work with, not for us to give them a sliding scale and peace out. So I love your suggestion to just like a community mental health or nonprofit, have a very clear system by which you determine who and when and what uh, gets the sliding scale and why. Yeah. And, but I think too, that is such a small part of the impact. Like you said, yes. it goes beyond. it's systemic stuff that we can do. Um, in our field. What are some ways that you see people working to change the system? I mean, you are obviously through what you do with Hey Tiffany. What do you see clinicians doing at their private practice level to work on some of these systemic issues? This is something actually that I've been looking more to find and elicit from therapists. Like, what are you actually doing beyond your practice? And the truth of the matter is for the most part, and of course the therapists I'm in contact with, are still in the struggle of even getting off the ground. So they honestly don't have a ton of bandwidth to mm. give back in bigger ways. But mm -hmm. the ones who I have heard of, um, uh, one fellow, Cody is his name. He's all around in the therapist world. He has started working with the LGBTQ community. He's in a, mm -hmm. a very small, conservative, super white town. And so he's been able to change his practice around so he can start volunteering and doing advocacy work there. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. So he's an example of somebody who was able to charge more, switch his schedule around and have the time and energy to give back. Yeah. I spoke with a woman uh, on, on our podcast actually over the weekend who has a group practice and is now creating a, an, a side hustle on top of that. But because she's created her uh, business life to take care of them financially, she's in Portland. She was able to go out and protest. And she said, you know, being able to put my body there uh, on the ground, she's a white woman. Uh, for black lives, for black people. She said, I would not have been able to do that three years ago if I hadn't had my financial situation set up right. So those are two amazing examples. Yeah, I love those. I've seen, you know, people have started nonprofit arms. By the way, a nonprofit business still has to make money, but your funding comes from corporations and other yes. places that allow for you to serve or have clinicians serve a community at the one-on-one -on -one kind of level. There's like boards that board development, there's boards that need our voices on them. If we want to change something that's happening at our local hospital in our city or, you know, get on the council, like show up to meetings and things like that and speak from your place of expertise. There's also stuff just even as an advocate within our licensure boards and things like that, where we can also do some work. I yeah. love that. And I know that there are, um, who Kurt and Katie, who do a lot of policy yeah. work around um, advocating for therapists to actually get some kind of payment as interns and not just be doing all this work for free. Yes. And I love that you highlight this point, And it's something that I also find very valuable to highlight that nonprofits are getting their money from somewhere. <laughs> yeah. They're getting money. So when therapists create a practice and then say, I'm going to be 
uh, all insurance based where they're not actually making enough to do well or have a all sliding scale based with really low fees, they're missing the point that the place they came from where they were just working had a whole bunch of money coming in outside of those people paying the sliding scale. And I, I, I think that's maybe something that therapists aren't consciously aware of. Right. I think that, well, now we bring up insurance too, <laughs> like looking at how do you, you know, there are therapists who feel like I want to be on panels um, because it improves access or maybe it also improves their marketing funnel. They have to do less because the insurance will just send them clients. For example, that's not always the case. Oh. Don't, it's never a guarantee that if you're on a panel, you're going to get clients, but some people end up going that route. What do you think about the dynamic of involving a third party into the therapeutic relationship? Look at her smile, you guys. As, no as, one can uh, see my talking. face. I see it and you're smiling. But I, like, I want to hear your take on it. I have many feelings. Um, the, the things you say are, are right on point. Therapists can have the insurance company do the marketing for them. That's a fantasy. They don't have to deal with the money, although you end up having to deal with a lot of paperwork and money problems anyway. But this idea of having the third party, is, that's an excellent observation and insight around the fact that it allows therapists to blame someone else. I'm not taking your money. I'm not, you know, doing this for the money. It's just insurance, you know, and insurance gets between us. It allows therapists to avoid the money conversation. It allows therapists to take, uh, to avoid taking responsibility for their financial need. I have definitely seen therapists who um, villainize the insurance and I can see all the reasons why you would do that, but they kind of collude with their clients to say that bad insurance, which allows the badness, quote unquote, to stay out of the room, as opposed to allowing for the feelings of the therapist's need, what it means to have a, a relationship where both parties are benefiting in some way. All of those conversations can stay out of the room when the therapist uh, relies on the narrative of the third party interrupting or coming between us. There's so many dynamics that can play out and be, uh, they can be addressed, and that would be awesome if therapists do, but more often than not, therapists are not really paying attention to um, the way that third party is playing out between them and their client. It's also interesting too, if we talk about intersectionality and insurance, and I don't think this is brought up enough, but Miranda and I were sharing in a training last week how you could have Blue Cross, for example, and I know there's so many plans or whatever, but in LA versus a town in oh. Alabama, and the rate be double what they get in Alabama versus LA because the competition, they can have any therapist they want in LA. They're overwhelmed. So they can afford to pay less, but yet the cost of living is higher. Or maybe you have this specialization in working with queer, the queer community or whatever, but you get valued less because the, there's more people versus like in Alabama, they can't get enough people on the panel so they try to entice more therapists by increasing the rate and so it's interesting this intersectionality of like need and demand mm. and culture and like when you have an expertise how it still doesn't always get valued um and how rates get set it's pretty interesting the system that we participate in when we're joining insurance and when we just accept our contracts instead of fighting for a better rate and things like that, um, I think there's more there that I don't even fully understand when you are maybe in a, like, when you do maybe need to take insurance for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, 
Some people feel like they need to, they work in a very, like a very poor community or, you know, I've heard all of the stories and then based on how many therapists are in the area, then you get kind of paid a fee instead of taking into consideration what the needs are of that therapist in order to have a viable income. I don't know. I think there's some other things there to delve into that we haven't all explored yet. Unless I, you- <laughs> well, I'm even the things you even described in terms of different rates being paid in different locations. I don't even know any of that because I don't, I don't deal with insurance and most of the people who come to work with me are no. looking to get off panels. Yes. Um, uh, but I think this, one of my fantasies, one of my dreams is that therapists start making enough money charging premium fees that they have the time and energy to do the advocacy work to change the FN insurance systems because they're making a lot of money off of a lot of therapists and the clients benefit because they can use their insurance. And I think that's great. And the insurance companies definitely benefit because they're making a lot of money, but the therapist the, is the one in between there who's not actually benefiting. And so if therapists could actually have the time, resources, and money, if they really feel like, um, hey, I believe in insurance because it makes therapy accessible, then advocate to make therapists be able to get paid a lot more of that money um, yes. than they're currently getting. Yeah. And I don't even know if the clients necessarily benefit. It makes it affordable. But That's then, right. That's right. But then Interesting. You, you know, if you have therapists who are burnt out because yeah. an insurance company came and clawed back a ton of money from them yeah. and now they're stressed out, that's going to impact the outcome too of the relationship. I only just heard about clawbacks, by the way, early this year. I was mm-hmm. like, well, that is a thing? What are we talking about? So that made me even more like, ah, insane yes. around um, so many therapists feeling like, I still hear from so many therapists who literally think that insurance is the only way to make money in private practice. They literally don't know that other people have cash pay, premium fee, private pay practices mm-hmm. and are able to make it. Yeah. And I, like I said, I think when people start to consider the cash, I, I did insurance for one month in my practice and then I got off because I, I, and so everything I teach about this is from my own lesson of, oh, you should research, you should do, you know, like I've made mistakes. And I think that um, when people see others that have a cash pay, it's often seen as like, oh, that's your privilege. You're able to do that. But I can't because of X, Y, Z. And my clients can't because of X, Y, Z. And what I love that you're doing is saying like, it's actually a, it's, it's a, it's a way that we fight back and a way we take a stand and protest and say that that's not okay. Yeah. That as a queer person, as a black person, as um, you know, whatever gender, whatever, that you des- you can do this, you know? And I think it's a, it's a way we, we say no, and we change things. Yes. These bigger things to change them is going to take forever, you know? And so, I'm one of those people that's like, I'm going to rebel and go do it my own way and see if I yes. can make an impact there. Absolutely. Always. And the more people we have who look like us, who yes. we see, oh, uh, if she can do it, I can do it. If they can do it, I can do it. It also serves as a, um, a possibility like that idea of, well, you have the privilege to do it because of X, Y, Z. The more people who are of all different uh, races, yes. classes, ethnicities, sexual identities who are doing it, it allows us to see, oh, this is something that I can do too. This is not just possible for a cis uh, white man. This is possible for us too. Wow. And even to see in that study with Ella Lasky, um, to hear how she uh, 
she went into gender too and how much men just and it, I see this in my course too. We have a couple of men who get in there sometimes. I love you, men. And they have so much more confidence, so much quick, more quickly to raise their fees and charge premium prices. They have a whole society behind them saying, you're worth this. Mm. And Ella Lasky found that men uh, have been, male therapists have been much more uh, confident and able and ready to raise their fees, charge cash pay without guilt and anxiety versus women who bring so much um, emotional weight, anxiety, shame, all of it. And it's kept us, um, again, internalizing and then reinforcing women getting paid less. Even though we set our own fees, we still end up getting paid less than males in private practice, white males particularly. That makes me so mad. <laughs> but yeah, that we're still that we're still here and still doing this, you know, we're perpetuating this amongst yeah. ourselves. We're now doing it to ourselves. So the system doesn't even have to do it to us anymore. I'm like, come on folks. Mm. So for anyone who's listening and is like, whoa, I need to do some work around my fees or they realize that this is an area that feels activating in their body or in their emotions what do you recommend people do to approach it and to start digging in deeper? Yeah, uh, I always say start with community. Mm -hmm. It feels very important for me that therapists uh, surround themselves with or even find one person who shares similar values around social justice values, for example, if that's something you value, maybe religion, uh, Christianity, Christian values, whatever the values are, you find someone who shares those values and is making a lot of money, cash pay, premium fee. So you can start saying like, oh, I see that person's doing it. That challenges my internal notions of everybody who's making money is bad. Oh, so find at least one person. And I'll say even more, find a community of folks who are encouraging you to play bigger, challenging you to play bigger, and who believe and advocate for you to play bigger. That's always number one, find other therapists. Mm. Number two, um, I really encourage therapists to get real about their financial situation. So not to base their fees on what their friends are doing or what they feel like, oh, I'm nervous, I'm just gonna charge uh, 125 because that's what I feel is okay. Um, or not to base it on quote unquote the market because I don't know too many therapists who have really done market research and even knows what that looks like. And even if you do quote unquote market research- You can't research, do it accurately. Go to psychology today and everyone lists their fees. Do you think they really charge that fee? Exactly. <laughs> That's so exactly right. You can't do it accurately. Yeah. That's right. Then there's so many therapists who say my fee is 150, but I'm on insurance. And they actually don't have anyone who's paying them 150. And so I yes. slide. Yeah. So have, their average rate is really like half that. Yeah. Exactly right. So when you're setting fees, we have a fun with fees calculator. I'm sure all of your people have done it. If they haven't, uh, they can go to heytiffany.com forward slash fee calculator. And we have a calculator there that goes over your current expenses. And your dream expenses. So we're not just basing it on like, oh, I got to pay my PG&E bill, but also like, what do you want to have to have a life that actually works for you? And so you plug in those numbers along with how many hours do you actually want to be working in your ideal practice? So not, oh, I can make my ideal uh, income revenue if I'm seeing 79 clients a week. No, what if you only want to see 15 clients a week and that feels good for you? So they go, can go and plug in all these numbers and then get the reality of, oh, this is what my fee needs to be. Mm -hmm. And for many therapists, well, one, they often cheat and they say, huh, this is what my fee needs to be. I'll charge half of that because they're afraid of the reality-based number that comes out. Um, but regardless of whether you 
have a number that you kind of fudge, like, I don't really need too much. So you play small or whether you get a number that scares you, there are going to be feelings that are attached to seeing the real number, be that 175, 250 or 150, whatever the number that comes out, you're going to have feelings about that number. We encourage you to make room for them, all of them, whether you're like, oh, I can never do it. Whether you feel like, oh, I could definitely do that. Shame. Oh no. What does it say about me to actually see that number? Whatever it is we say, first make room for the feelings. It's okay. You're not bad. A lot of people have had these reactions. And then once you've kind of uh, let yourself feel all that, um, go invest in working with somebody who can help you make that fee happen, whatever it is. And I, and I want to say, um, uh, if some, some therapists get a fee out of that thing, like $489 per hour, right. and they say, oh, that's impossible. Well, then we start thinking about scale. I don't mm-hmm. teach it. I'm not going to say, you go, go work with someone else around that, right? They can work with you around that. Um, but it doesn't mean don't go for that number. It means, all right, let's start getting creative about what it means to start making more. Yeah. So then we say, how much of that is going to come from your direct services and how much of that is going to come from other kind of scalable things, whether that be hiring other clinicians, courses, retreats, intensives, I mean, whatever, you know, you know, then you know, if like an or my need requires a different business plan than what I imagined. Yes. And so that again comes down to, um, that intersectionality too of like, Oh, if you were raised in a family or, you know, there's a culture and you're like, we just get by, we're humble. We don't deserve extravagant things and things like that. And so people who put these basic expenses versus your dream expenses, mm. some of that stuff can really come up. And I will talk to some therapists be like, don't you deserve a vacation? At what point do you, it's okay to pay off your mortgage. Like you would want that for other people. Yeah. I want that for you. And um, to have, to change the idea that, oh, if you're genderqueer, you're going to be, you're going to be making less money. Well, let's change that story with you. Yes. Yes. That's right. You be the person who's going to be the example of no, that if I'm whatever, you know, whatever kind of label or group that I'm in that, no, that doesn't have to be the case. We can, you are the revolution, you know, you're the start of that internally. I love that. That's wonderful. Exactly. So if people want to check out your calculator and you, they go to HeyTiffany.com. Yes. Forward slash fee calculator. All one word. All one word. Thanks for being on here. What people don't know is that I don't send questions in advance. I know you might listen to podcasts and think that there's all these like pre-planned things, but I just told Tiffany, I said, I want you to come on and share your story and why you're so passionate about it. And let's just talk about the intersectionality of, of this stuff and what comes up and um, so this is just our real authentic conversation, just babbling on about all these things that really do matter to both of us. And I'm hoping that it'll elicit within you a desire to be part of the change with us. And I'm going to say, I'm going to actually, I'm going to push back on you on this for a moment. You said, this is just us babbling. Fuck that. <laughs> We're not babbling. We're strong, powerful women who are yes. fucking making a difference. And it's so, okay, you know, there's yeah. so much. I do that too. That's why I called you because I'm like, oh shit. I recognize myself in saying some powerful, amazing, we just had this powerful, amazing conversation. And then we say, eh, but it's not much. It is a lot. <laughs> yes, It's sir. a lot. Thank you. I will, I stand corrected. Thank you for seeing that and calling it out. And I am constantly working on that in myself too. So yes, uh, 
I appreciate you being here, Tiffany. And I, I hope people can really sense why I love what you do and your, it's just your personality. It's so fun um, to be around and you make approaching this stuff meaningful, but easier too. Thank you. And, and, and you actually got me thinking about a lot too. So I really appreciate you're a great conversational partner. So thank you. <laughs> All right, you guys, we'll see you on the next episode. Go check out Tiffany and take care.